0: I don't know if your group of friends when you were a child was similar to mine, but for my group of friends, keeping your word was a really big deal, but my group of friends was also full of little twerps, and so keeping our word was not something that we did very often, and so there were certain times when just saying that you would do something or that you wouldn't do something, it seems like more... Often than not, it was that you wouldn't do something. Just saying that you wouldn't do something wasn't enough. Sometimes you had to back it up by promising. And so you had to convince somebody by saying, I promise I'm not going to do this. But if it was a really big deal, then you may have to go to a next level and, and offer a symbolic gesture that would prove that you were serious about this promise you were making and you'd have to invoke the pinky promise. The pinky promise, as I'm sure you well know, is very serious business and it is a very important bond between two people. But sometimes not even a pinky promise would suffice and then the S word would be brought in. You'd be holding pinkies, staring at each other's eyes, and then they would say, do you swear that you're not going to do this? You're like, I swear, I swear. But we'd always have at least one person in the group who was just willing to go next level the, the dude too far guy, you know what I'm talking about? And so we would all be really serious in our promises and he would say, let's cut our hands and be blood brothers so that we will hold this oath forever. And we were all like, no, that's not at all what we want to do. It's not that serious. But he would take it there because that's how passionate he was about keeping his word. And I learned at a very young age, first off, that that seems very painful and not very hygienic. And so thankfully we never went that far. But also that when blood gets involved, things get serious. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at the theme of creation in the Old Testament. We've seen a God who created everything that exists and is powerful and keeps all of those things moving. We've seen a God who calls inadequate and ill-equipped people to do work far beyond what they're capable of doing and equips them and prepares them to go and do that and to join along him in the work that he's doing. And when we look at that God, we see that a God who is powerful enough to equip broken, sinful people to do kingdom work. When we see a God who is powerful enough to speak the universe into existence and to keep it moving, we find there a God who has nothing to prove to anyone. God doesn't have anything to prove to me. He doesn't have anything to prove to you. And the word that created the universe should stand on its own. When God says something, it should be taken at its word. And it is. And God's word is powerful enough to do all things. And God is faithful and he doesn't have to show us how faithful he is because that's just who he is. But we also have a God that because he created us, knows us. God knows our doubts. He knows our weaknesses and he knows our fears. And because of that, we have a God who is willing to give us something deeper, even though he doesn't have to. We have a God who makes covenants. And a covenant is different than a promise. A covenant is something more meaningful and something more significant and even something physical. A promise can be an idea. A promise can be words in the atmosphere, but a covenant gets down to the skin and the bone. When O. Palmer Robertson describes covenants. He talks about it in this context of of the blood that's involved. He says the phrase bond and blood or bond of life and death expresses the ultimacy of the commitment between God and man in the covenantal context or the covenantal relationship. By initiating covenants, God never enters into a casual or informal relationship with humanity. Instead, the implications of his bonds extend to the ultimate issues of life and death. He says the basic terminology describing the inauguration or the creation of a covenant relationship shows the life and death intensity of the divine covenants, the things that God makes with us. He points out that the phrase to make a covenant in the Old Testament literally means to cut a covenant that when a covenant is made, something or someone is cut. That God is willing to put blood in the promise. That God is willing to show us in the ultimate way that he is serious about what he promises. And so today we're going to look across the Old Testament at four of the major covenants that we see in the Bible. And we're going to see this covenantal God making these promises to his people and see how the theme of covenant in the Old Testament not only gives us a new lens through which we see the big story of Scripture, but also reveals to us the character and the nature of a promise-keeping God and lays the foundation for God's ultimate covenant with his people that comes through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we're going to begin by looking at the covenant that God made with a man named Noah. And that comes from Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 20 through verse 22. And this is the word of God. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word as we do every week. And God, we thank you that your word is not only powerful enough to create, it's not only kind enough to call us to be a part of your work, but that your word is faithful enough that it will never fail. But God, I also thank you that you know my weaknesses and that you know my doubts. And even though you don't have to prove anything to me at all, God, you still go the extra measure to make sure that I know and that we know as a people and that your people throughout time have been able to know that you will do what you've promised to do. So help us to find peace and comfort as we look at your faithfulness. But also, God, help us to find hope. As we remember the promise in the New Testament where Paul says that, that you who began this good work in our lives through salvation, through Jesus, will one day finish the work that you started because you made a covenant through the blood of your Son for us. So God, speak to us as we hear the stories of these covenants that you made with your people in the Old Testament and help it point us to the covenant that you made with all people in the New And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Noah's story begins in a world gone astray. A world that's gone completely and totally wrong, full of selfish, wretched, wicked, and most importantly in Noah's story, violent people. God looked at the world that he had made, the world that he had created to be good, to be perfect, to be exactly like he wanted it to be. And just a few chapters after Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God created the heavens and the earth and humanity, and it was all very good, just several chapters later, we see a world that is very different. We see a world that is filled with people who don't honor the God who created them. People who have rejected their calling to be the image bearers of God in the world. And people who are filled with hatred and violence and are killing one another. And it's in that context that God made a decision. God comes to Noah and he says, there's a problem. Things are not the way that they should be. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, it says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to the heart. And he said that, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's a troubling thing to hear God say. But he says, I'm sorry that I created these people, and so I'm going I'm to start all over. But verse 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And so God looks at this man named Noah, and he tells him the story. And he says, I have determined, in verse 13 of chapter 6, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he says, go and make yourself an ark. You go and make yourself a boat. And God looks at Noah and he says, I am going to use you to bring about new creation. I'm going to use you to start all over. And so he calls Noah to be a part of the work that he's doing, just like we saw last week. And so Noah follows the instructions that God gives him, and he builds a boat. And then Noah and his family and a whole lot of animals go into this boat, and it starts to rain. For 40 days and 40 nights, it starts to rain, and the floods rise and rise and rise. And just like God promised, we see a lot of death. But then after a very long time, the waters begin to subside, and the boat rests on dry land. And we see Noah, this man that God chose to bring about new creation, walk out of the boat and step up to an altar. It says that Noah builds this altar in the passage that we just read, and he takes some of the animals that he took on the boat some of these clean animals that that are worthy of sacrifice that he took on the boat, these animals that survived the flood, Noah takes them and he offers them as a sacrifice to God in thankfulness for God's faithfulness to save his people. And in that passage, we see that the smell of the burnt offerings, the pleasing aroma came up to God's nose and he was pleased. And then in chapter 9 of Genesis, God looks at Noah in verse 8 and says, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. With every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and the beasts of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I'll establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And again, he says it again in verse 17. This is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Noah offered the sacrifice to God. And then God made the covenant. And there was no wait, put on Noah at all. In fact, what's amazing about this covenant is that even in, the ch- in chapter 8 that we read, we see God say that even still, people are wicked at the heart, that people are wicked from their youth. Nothing changed about humanity itself when God made this covenant with Noah, but God made the covenant with Noah anyway. And he says, no matter what happens, No matter what goes on, I'm never going to do this again. And every time you see the rainbow in the sky, you'll remember my promise. But God says, not only will you remember that promise, but I will remember that promise too. And God says that he is going to be the one who upholds that covenant. And we see God's covenant with Noah as a covenant of deliverance. It's a covenant of perseverance. It's a covenant of protection. Of God saying, I have the power to do this again, but because of the sacrifice that Noah made and because of God's heart and his compassion, he promises to never do it again. And after God made this covenant with Noah, the way that we see Noah forever changes. Because of God's covenant, Noah and this rainbow are symbols of salvation for a remnant of God's people. And they're symbols of hope for every generation. Abraham's story begins in the aftermath of Noah's story. Abraham's story begins with a people who are divided and disorganized. A group of people who are nomads physically walking all over the place and living in tents, but also people who are nomads spiritually following whatever gods they happen to find or whatever gods happen to be in the homes that they grow up in. But then God comes to a man named Abram. He says, I have a plan for you. He says, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. And your people are going to be a blessing to the entire world. Your people are going to bring salvation into the world. He says, get up and go, because I've got this place I want to show you. And so Abraham gets up in faith and starts walking towards the land that God is going to show him. And some time passes, and then God comes to Abraham again, and he reminds him of that covenant. He reminds him of the promise that he made, but Abraham is very old at this time. And so it doesn't seem like a thing that could possibly happen, that he would be the father of a great nation. And Abraham is really troubled by this. He says, I know that you're making me this promise. I know that you have this big idea, but I I don't think you've got it right. This promise is going to have to come through somebody else because I don't have children. And in case you haven't noticed, I am really old. And I don't know much, but I know that's not how this tends to work. But God says, no, Abraham, look, you're going to have children, and they're going to be like the number of the stars in the sky and the number of the sand on the shore. And this is what he says to Abraham. He says, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said again, oh, Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house and basically says is not my person. It's Eliezer of Damascus. He doesn't belong to me. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And he's saying this is not how it's supposed to work. But God says. Mm-mm. This man will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And so when the sun started going down, God let Abram take a nap. And Abram goes to sleep and God gives him this vision. And in his vision, he says, go and, and get some animals. The animals that are supposed to be used for sacrifices. And I want you to take these animals and kill them and cut them in half and separate the parts. And God says, I am going to do what I promised you. And here's how you can believe that. The passage says that Abraham sees a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces of the animals that were cut. And now this may seem like a really weird vision, and this doesn't seem to clear up a lot of stuff in our minds, but it did for Abraham. Because in the in the ancient world, this is how a lot of covenants were made. They would take an animal and they would offer it as a sacrifice and they would cut the pieces in half and the two people making a covenant together would walk through the pieces of the animal. And it was a symbolic way of saying, if I break my side of the covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me. It was a life and death kind of covenant. It was a blood oath. And so it was a very intense picture Of how deep these covenants would be made between the two parties. But what's amazing about Abraham's vision is that Abram never walks through the pieces. Abram sees this this smoking pot and this fiery torch, the, the image of God passing through these covenantal animals, and it's a reminder to Abram that this covenant is not about you that you have nothing to uphold, that you have nothing to keep. I am the one who promised you that you're going to be the father of a great nation. And if I say it's going to happen, then it's going to happen. And if you want proof, watch this. And God walks through the fire or walks through the animals alone and basically is saying, if I don't keep my promise, then I'm not God. If I don't keep my promise, I might as well be dead. And Abram wakes up with a bit of a new confidence. And as we know, God eventually does keep his promise. Because he tells Abram that after 400 years of slavery, that his people are going to go into the promised land and they're going to have the land that he promised that he would give them. And we know, because of the story of Joshua, that eventually that takes place exactly like God said that it would. God's covenant with Abraham brought the promise of land To wandering nomads. It gave hope and a place to belong and a place to call home to a people that didn't even have a name at the time. And on this side of the covenant, we see Abram as the founder of a nation and the father of a faith. Moses' story begins about 400 years later where we have Abraham's people under Pharaoh's law. We see Abraham's people as slaves and strangers in a foreign land under foreign rule. People who feel like they have been forgotten by God. But God comes and he calls a man named Moses, like we saw last week. And he does so in an intense way. Moses sees God in this burning bush and God speaks to him from the bush and he says, you're going to go and you're going to rescue my people out of captivity. You're going to go to the most powerful man in the world and say it's time to let God's people go. And after a little arguing, Moses and his brother Aaron go to do exactly that. And they stand before the Pharaoh and they say, Pharaoh, let God's people go. And the Pharaoh says, no, thank you. Have a nice day. I'll see you later. And they come back time and time again. And then as you know, God starts to bring plagues into Egypt. And with each passing plague, the Pharaoh gets more and more frustrated, but he won't let the people go until finally God sends an angel of death to pass over all of Egypt. And any household that had not taken a lamb and painted the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their door that night, their firstborn son died. And that night, when God started cutting a covenant with his people, Pharaoh let the people go. And God's people began a journey to the promised land. And after God rescues them again by helping them walk through the Red Sea, and we're going to talk about that in more detail over the next couple weeks, as God rescues them through the Red Sea, as they run from Pharaoh's armies on the other side of the Red Sea, on the other side of their salvation, God takes Moses up a mountain. And in Exodus chapter 20, as Moses is on this mountain, it says that God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And God said, you won't have any other gods above me. You're not going to make any graven images. You're not going to carve out for yourself any new gods. You're not going to take my name in vain. You're going to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You should honor your father and mother and this legacy of faith that I'm giving them, and you'll live a long time in the land that I promised you. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't be jealous of what your neighbor has, and don't bear false witness about the people around you. Now, when we think about those Ten Commandments, that doesn't feel very covenantal. That just seems like a list of rules, and to a certain degree it is. But in the ancient world, this is actually the picture of a kind of treaty that was really common. You see, if there were two nations at war and the more powerful nation defeated the smaller nation, then the more powerful nation would make a covenant with the nation that they conquered. And so they would come to this smaller nation, they would say, listen, we beat you. You know this, you're sad, we're a little bit more happy than you are, but we have beat you, we won, but because we are gracious and kind and because we don't want to just wipe you off the face of the earth, we are going to allow you to be part of who we are. And so they say, you're now our people. And they would offer this covenant where they would say, this is how you're going to live as our people. Here are the rules that you're going to follow. And if you follow these rules, here are some of the rewards that we'll give you. And if you don't, here are some of the things that are going to happen that you're not going to like quite as much. But it was a covenant. It was a treaty. And God looks at these people who had been in slavery for 400 years under foreign oppression and foreign rule. And he looks at them. He says, I am the Lord your God. I went into Egypt and I conquered the Pharaoh. I took over the most powerful man and the most powerful kingdom in the world. And I brought you out of this kingdom. And so now you're no longer under their oppression or their rule. I am your God. I am your king. And you are my people. And here's what it looks like to be my people. See, God's covenant with Moses gave a new identity to a people who long felt forgotten. To a people who felt like they had no identity, who were strangers in a foreign land, who were slaves under a foreign rule. And now as we look back, we see Moses as the giver of the law, a symbol of God's community and a God who loved his people and gave them a new identity and a new hope and led them to a promised land. David's story begins with a restless people under an unfaithful king that they chose. Because again, God was supposed to be their king. And for several generations, that's how things worked. But then finally, the people of Israel started looking around and they saw all these other nations with kings and they said, we want a king too. And we want that guy. We want this guy named Saul because he's very tall That seemed to be the only criteria that they chose Saul for. It was just that he was taller than everyone else, and so I guess maybe they could all see him, and so it was easier to vote. They recognized his face. That doesn't seem like the most effective way to choose a king, but it's how they did it. They said, tall guy, he's our king. God, make that happen. That's who we want. And so God said, fine, you want him? Here you go. And things were going well at first. But then Saul started to be unfaithful to what God had called him to do. And as Saul was moving down this path of unfaithfulness, God sent his prophet Samuel to the house of a man named Jesse to look for the heir apparent. And there he found in a young man named David, someone who had been overlooked, someone whose father didn't even think he would be worthy of consideration for such an important and pivotal role in the life of God's people, God anointed David and said, "'You are going to be my king.'" Eventually, David rose to power, and God blessed Israel. It wasn't always a smooth ride. David had some issues. David had some problems. But at the end of the day, the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. And one day, God comes to David as they're preparing the city to have a temple built in the middle of it, a place to worship God. He comes to David, and he says, you're not going to build my house That's awkward, because David really wanted to build God a house. But he says, you're not going to do that. Somebody else is going to build that house for me. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, though. He says, one day, you're going to rest with your fathers. And I will raise up one of your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for me. And I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. And verse 15 says, In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all the visions, Nathan the prophet spoke to David. God's covenant with David is a promise that one day God's people will no longer fear thrones or authorities. No longer will God's people have to worry about the people around them coming in and taking over. They'll no longer have to fear their enemies or their right or on their left because one day God is going to bring about a king and a kingdom that no other nation, that no other principality, that no other power could ever stand against. It's a covenant of safety and of hope. And that that perfect kingdom was coming with a perfect king. But one thing that's important to notice in David's covenant is that there's no blood. There's no death. We've seen that go hand in hand with all the other covenants this far. But not here. At least not yet. Because if you know your Old Testament history, then maybe you think, okay, well, maybe this was supposed to be Solomon. Because Solomon was David's son, and he was the one that got to build the temple for God. And so he built a house of God in the middle of the people of Israel, but we find out that Solomon wasn't the son. And it certainly wasn't Solomon's son, because he was kind of awful. And all the other kings of Israel, some of them were up, some of them were down, but none of their kingdoms lasted forever until one day in the fullness of time. At the exact right moment in history, God brought his king into the world. But he wasn't the kind of king that was expected. As we saw in our readings today, Jesus came to bring a kingdom that was not of this world, a kingdom that was unexpected and different. But Jesus also brought with him the blood to seal that covenant. Because the very king that came to bring God's kingdom that would one day mean the end of death and suffering for all of God's people suffered and died to bring that covenant into existence. But until that day, until the day that Christ came, David would stand as the image of a great king of Israel. David was the archetype of all the, the, all the other kings and all the other rulers of Israel will be measured against until Christ came into the world. And in each of these covenants, we see that God kept his promise. For Noah, God never again destroyed the world with water. With Abraham, God eventually, after those 400 years of slavery, took the people of God through Moses and then through Joshua and brought them into the promised land and to the exact place that God said He would give His people. And we know that through the Israelite people that God did bring salvation and blessing to all nations when Christ entered into the world and opened up salvation to anyone who would believe. We know that God kept His promise with the Israelite people that He established with Moses that when they kept God's law, things went really well. And when they turned away, things went much more poorly. Until the day that Jesus came and fulfilled the law on behalf of the people, and took the law that was written in stone and wrote it on the hearts of the people, and justified us by Jesus and his law keeping, not our own. And we know that God brought Jesus into the world to establish a new kind of kingdom that no principalities or rulers can stand against, and that one day Jesus will come and fully realize that kingdom here on earth once and for all, putting away all other rulers and all other authorities. But each of these covenants also reveals to us part of God's nature. In Noah, we see God as both judge and savior. We see a God who won't allow wickedness to persist that long. We see a God who hates violence and and wants peace. We see a God who does not take it well when his people are suffering. But we also see a God who saves, a God who brings life out of death, and a God who brings new creation out of the old. In Abraham, we see God as a father and as a founder. We see God as a a God who gives life to his people and gives identity to his people and also establishes them in himself and gives them a home. We see the God who, in Moses, is a lawgiver and through his commandments brings about a perfect and intimate relationship with his people. And in David, we see a God who is king. We see a God who has a big plan. We see a God who put all of these covenants in place as hints and whispers of something better to come. And when God spoke to Noah, he promised Noah something very important. But Noah's promise wasn't the most important thing. Noah's promise was designed to point us to a better promise, to a better salvation that would never pass away. When God made his promise to Abraham, it was important and it was meaningful. But Abraham's promise was not the most important covenant. But it pointed us to a time when God would bring that perfect salvation and give his people a perfect identity through Christ. We again see that Moses wasn't the big deal. Moses wasn't the big story. But one day God was going to bring about one who could keep the law and not only give it, and would give us the ability to be sons and daughters of God, an eternal covenant with him. A God who conquers the king of our lives, our sin and our shame and our guilt through Christ, and brings us out of that slavery and captivity into a perfect freedom that will never pass away. David was a good king, but he wasn't a perfect king. But in David's story, we see it pointing to Christ, who is the once and for all king, a king who is bringing a different kind of kingdom. But while we see God who is very concerned with the big plan, what's important to notice is that we also see a God who really cares about the short story. Because even though God is always looking to the big picture, he never takes his eyes or his heart off of the present. Each of those covenants weren't the answer. These men, Moses and Abram and Noah and David, they weren't the Savior that God had in mind. But that doesn't mean that they didn't matter. That doesn't mean that their calling wasn't important. Because of the way that God works, there is no big story without each of these small individual stories. And so we're reminded that when God calls us to do work that certainly doesn't seem as big as the work of Christ on the cross, that it still matters, that it still has value in God's story. And that all of our little stories and all these little pieces make up the big story that God is writing of the salvation and redemption and restoration of his people. And in this big story in the Old Testament, as we see God's covenants unfold and then fulfilled in Christ, we find a God who is patient. We find a God who is faithful. We find a God who is kind and compassionate, allowing broken and sinful people to be a part of what he's doing. Because outside of Noah, that's not a super great list of guys. David was an adulterer and a murderer and a warrior, Moses was a murderer and a coward. Abraham did all kinds of weird things, very strange guy who made a lot of really terrible decisions, and yet God used them and made a covenant with them that wasn't based on their ability to keep it, but based on God's faithfulness, and used each and every one of them to bring about salvation in the world, ultimately through Christ. We see a God who has never thrown off base, a God who has never worried, never concerned, but also a God who is very aware of the times when we are. And so as we look at this theme of covenant through God's big story, it should definitely change the way that we read the Bible. Because we do believe that this is God's word given to us to reveal himself to us, but also to give us comfort and peace and hope. And when we see these covenants, we are reminded that we are listening to the words and reading the words of a God who not only loves us, but a God who is faithful and will never leave us or forsake us. And everything that he says will come to pass. And so it should teach us to be patient, but also teach us to be hopeful. It should give us peace. It should give us strength to be able to do what we're called to do and also give us the desire to never doubt what God has called us to do but to realize that God calls us to participate in all of this to bring about his good work in the world. And so as we worship, as we pray, as we live, as we do all of these things, let's do so remembering that we serve a God who makes covenants and keeps covenants with his people. A God who is willing to put skin in the game for our comfort and our assurance, and a God who will always keep his promises. And as we serve a faithful God, let's do so faithfully. Until the day when we see his perfect and unblemished kingdom once and for all, when Jesus comes and makes everything right and everything new. Until that day, let's join along with God in his creation work. Let's answer our call to go out and to make disciples of all nations and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And let's hold fast to the covenant that God has made with us and trust that he who began the good work in us will finish it on the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray.